1: Good morning. My name is, uh, Dr. Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society. And today I'm interviewing Dr. Harlan Ullman of, among other things, the Atlantic Council. Dr. Ullman has had extensive government experience and is a Vietnam War veteran. The subject of our interview today is Dr. Ullman's new book, Anatomy of Failure. Dr. Ullman what would you say is the primary thesis of your book?
0: Well, you need to read the full title, Charles. It's Anatomy of Failure, Why America Loses Every War It Starts, and to the degree there is a subtitle that would apply to since the end of World War II. If you go back and look, you will see that Korea was at best a draw. We lost outright in Vietnam when we used military force without just cause, we tended not to achieve our objectives and often failed. And then, of course, the second Iraq war was indeed a defeat, which unfortunately changed the geostrategic landscape of the greater Middle East uh, for the far worse, and we are still dealing with that. Interestingly, the reasons or the principal reasons for these failures rest in the Oval Office and presidents whom we elect. Uh, Presidents we elect and John Kennedy cynically said there is no school for presidents, tend to be ill-prepared and inexperienced for the rigors of the job, understanding that this is probably the toughest job in the world. Furthermore, they tended to exercise poor strategic judgment, largely for the third reason, that they had insufficient knowledge and learning and understanding about the conditions in which force would be used either in outright wars such as Vietnam or the Second Iraq War, Uh, or in lesser uses of force, whether that was in Libya in 2011, Grenada in 1983, and a host of other applications of of military force. Um, And interestingly, this applies to presidents irrespective of age and political party. The mistakes that John Kennedy made and Lyndon Johnson made were replicated by Barack Obama and George W. Bush. Uh, In that ideology, campaign promises groupthink Uh, or just a lack of knowledge and understanding caused us to take action when we should not have done so simply because uh, that was going to turn out wrongly. In Vietnam, as people remember, we believed that there was a monolithic Soviet-Communist-Chinese threat that was going to take over Southeast Asia and then run the dominoes for as much as they possibly could. Uh, John Kennedy also campaigned on a missile gap. Indeed, there was a missile gap but it was in our favor, and so as a result, we militarized in terms of rearmaments and decided that the battlefield of democracy would be in Vietnam. Uh, Similarly, George W. Bush thought he was going to be able to change the geostrategic landscape of the greater Middle East in 2003 after the attacks of 2001 that destroyed the World Trade Towers. And in terms of lack of knowledge and understanding, Before September 11th, I would argue most Americans didn't know the difference between Sunnis and Shias, let alone Islam. And in Vietnam, we didn't understand the complexity of the war. That was not only a civil war, but it was wars within wars. And so unless or until you have complete or at least thorough knowledge and understanding, often we use force for the wrong reasons. And in those circumstances, we fail to achieve our objectives.
1: Well, you've raised a whole gamut of uh, issues and subjects which we will explore in a little bit greater depth in our conversation. Uh, let me, though, ask you, before we do that, uh, how would you say um, your military experience has influenced the writing of the book?
0: Very much so. Let me also say that, fortunately, we won the important wars, which, parenthetically, we did not start, um, World War One, World War Two, and the Cold War. And we also succeeded under George H. W. Bush, first in after the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union imploded, of making Europe whole, free, and at peace, which was a magnificent accomplishment. And then the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991, when we drove Saddam Hussein and Iraq military out of Kuwait, those were done masterfully. So there have been occasions when we understood what we were doing uh, regarding. Uh, your point. In the book, I have a number of vignettes, my own personal observations and experiences, which clearly influenced my thinking. In Vietnam, it was clear that we did not know what we were doing, that we were entirely uncoordinated. We fought four or five different air wars. We had three or four different ground wars ongoing. And because we rotated people in and out on a 12 or 13 month basis, we had no continuity. And in retrospect, it was clear that uh, with a strategy of search and destroy in which body count became the metric. Even though we were trying to kill our way to victory, the more people we killed, the more enemies we created. And in the ensuing years, for reasons that uh, were ones of almost serendipity, I had an interesting perspective in terms of many uses of force. I was either an advisor or I was deeply engaged in some of these activities. And so all of that gave me a perspective which led to the conclusion that unless or until we have sufficient knowledge and understanding of when we use force, it's unlikely to succeed, even though we have the best military in the world. And furthermore, as in Vietnam or in Iraq or in Afghanistan after 2001, we expected the military to achieve far more than it could in terms of nation building, in terms of political and economic achievements that were really not the military's capacity. But because of the uh, potential and the ability of the military to do things, it was used in ways that it could not work. And so that was a further misunderstanding about the limits of military force and what a very competent Department of Defense could and could not achieve.
1: One of the points you make in the early section of the book where you're recounting your Vietnam War experiences is the um, negative effects of um, treatment, um, if you want to call it that, of uh, enemy prisoners, a.k.a., uh, shooting them out of hand um, isn't it also the case though that similar practices I suppose if you want to label it that way were in effect in uh, or during World War II particularly 1944 and 1945 at least as per the well-known military historian uh Sir Max Hastings by Anglo-American forces vis-a-vis surrendering German forces
0: no no, the, it's entirely different. Uh, what you're talking about in Vietnam was so-called Operation Phoenix, which was out to eliminate what so, we call so essence, extreme you're pre- that... prejudice. Let, let me finish my point here, Charles. Uh, and this was a combined CIA operation that was dealing with civilians in the South who were accused of being Viet Cong collaborators are member of the Viet Cong. It was rather what the Nazis did, quite frankly, to the resistance in France. This was directed against the civilian population. In World War II, while there were some atrocities that were committed, mostly by the other side, by the way, that's entirely different because this was an armed force against them, a military, against the military. Operation Phoenix was being waged against the civilian populations in South Vietnam without sufficient evidence that's in some cases and without just cause or without any kind of due process.
1: So, so in essence, you're saying as um, other than, uh, I suppose you can say, horrible but um, isolated incidences like My Lai, um, it was not uh, anything approaching practice for American forces. Uh, we won't speak about South Vietnamese forces, but American forces to um, kill prisoners
0: no, there wasn't. Unfortunately, when you talk about me lie. What happened was that we were relying on a draft T- army, and these people were untrained, uh, they were unprepared, and these circumstances, which were horrible and, and unacceptable, unfortunately happened. And in part because, interestingly, more Americans were killed under the regime of Richard Nixon than during the Kennedy Johnson years because the war was extended. And you have these atrocities because we had uh, forces who were not prepared, who were not ready, and indeed who were frightened. And uh, that is no excuse. It should never have happened. There were other uh, circumstances beyond me lie. And to some degree, you see that in any war. It is not excusable, but it is one of the horrors of war that happen, uh, no matter how well-trained forces may be. And to some degree, it happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, fortunately, marginally, and in almost every case, the people who conducted those uh, situations were brought to some form of justice. So I think that there was a, a, a very rigorous and, I think, effective attempt to limit all these. Having said that, you will remember that at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq after 2003, the treatment of the prisoners there was abominable it was a disgrace and it really hurt the american effort because it it repudiated everything we stood for so those things happen but believe me the senior leadership in the military goes out of its way to prevent those things and to take appropriate action when they are discovered
1: on uh, pages 18 and 19 of your book you emphasize the importance of uh, understanding the enemy's culture and politics um, for American forces in uh, yep. these types of conflicts. But isn't it the case that uh, it would be hard to argue that American forces had a deep uh, or even a political leadership to some extent had a deep understanding of say Japanese yeah. politics or culture or even to some extent German politics of culture during World War II. There's a famous vignette where uh, President Roosevelt uh, talked uh, with one of his subordinates about the need to uh, convert the Japanese to a more gentle type of, uh, personality. Um, and he advocated or suggested that, well, perhaps we should cross-breed them with Filipinos. Filipinos are very, uh, passive and peaceful people. If we cross-breed uh, them, something uh, better will come out uh, than current Japanese population. I mean, obviously, uh, that type of level of knowledge is not something that you could say shows deep understanding of Japanese politics or culture.
0: Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't believe everything you read, and I would refute that particular circumstance or put it in different context. But having said that, uh, unfortunately, too often Americans believe that people think like us or need of education to come up to our standards, and we use mirror imaging. Actually, General of the Army Douglas MacArthur was brilliant in the occupation of Japan. And he took a great deal of time to understand Japanese culture. And that's one of the reasons why the transition led to the current Japan that it did. So there was full understanding. Unfortunately, MacArthur did not exercise that same understanding in Korea in 1950 after the war broke out. And after the Incheon landing and the fact that the North Koreans were were being routed uh, heading north, MacArthur refused to appreciate that the Chinese were going to come in even though they signaled several times so a million Chinese entered the fray, and the war ended with a with a truce on the 38th parallel. But today, in today's world, given the fact that we have such easy means of, of training and teaching people, uh, cultural understanding is, is critical. The services, certainly the military services, have foreign area experts now, and to a large degree that is being inculcated when it had not happened in the past. Uh, One of the problems is, however, because we've cut the Foreign Service so dramatically, we are losing foreign expertise. And your point about how do you get that into the Oval Office and Presidents uh, is extremely difficult for any number of reasons. And you will note in the book, one of the things I call for are means to improve the knowledge and understanding the part of senior officials by having them take uh, certain mandatory courses at what I would call the National Security University University. That would be for new members of Congress when they're elected and for senior political appointees to make sure that there is a better understanding that there are differences in culture and unless we understand these cultural differences, making our policies work is going to be a far more um, difficult task.
1: Actually, that brings up, uh, your point brings up uh, my next question, which is, uh, why do Americans elect leaders who, by most ordinary standards, are not qualified to be president, particularly in the area of uh, foreign policy?
0: Uh, The Constitution only specifies four qualifications to be president. You must be 35. You must be naturally born, whatever that means now. There are obviously some differences. You have to have lived in the United States for at least 14 years, and most importantly, you have to have a majority of the electoral college votes. We don't optionally elect the president, as Hillary Clinton found out in 2016. But judgment, experience, character, knowledge are not requirements. And unfortunately, the political process has become such that people who aspire to the presidency, given that, given that both parties are moving uh, much more to the left and right, reflect very, very narrow interest groups. And you take a look at the last four presidents, Bill Clinton, however bright he was, was not ready for the job. George W. Bush, whatever his qualities were, was not ready. Barack Obama was far less experienced. And of course, the least experienced president we had was Donald Trump. But each of these represented a a relatively small slice of their party. And Americans who really represent the center, which are the majority of Americans, are really not well represented in terms of who picks presidents, and so as a result, the presidents we pick are usually very inexperienced. The last exception was George H. W. Bush. Uh, Before that, Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon, of course, had Watergate and was forced to resign, and Lyndon Johnson, who was in fact quite well experienced, uh, had a deal with Vietnam, which uh, forced his resignation and ultimately probably led to an early death.
1: Isn't, isn't there an oddity though of the fact that the, um, if you go back into American history from its origins, the presidents who've been most, had most prior experience, I'm thinking of people like John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, James Buchanan, in the 20th century William Howard Taft, uh, Herbert Hoover, and of course George Herbert Walker Bush, all were one-termers. Right. And even though in the case of George Herbert Walker Bush, you can, and John Quincy Adams, you can argue that in the area of foreign relations, they were extremely successful. Uh, that didn't prevent them from getting the boot after four years.
0: Well, I think the first thing you have to understand is that the 20th century changed the nature of the presidency. In fact, it was World War II. Uh, before World War II, uh, you could drive into the White House because there was nobody to stop you, and the, the guard was really the White House butler. Of course, that changed dramatically, and the role of the presidency changed rather dramatically, as did the U.S. government. The U.S. government was relatively small for most of our history until the Great Depression and then, of course, World War II. And so the role of the presidency, I would argue, has become far more important today. Um, The reasons that George H.W. Bush was not not elected seems to me really to rest in that Ross Perot took 19 percent of the vote. George H.W. Bush suffered from Graves' disease, which affected uh, his endurance and capacity, and quite frankly, he felt that with a 95% popularity rating in 1991, how could he be beaten by what he called a draft-dodging, womanizing, uh, pot-smoking guy from uh, Arkansas? But you're right, successful presidents are not recognized, and I think that the most Uh, The most tragic example of that was George H. W. Bush, because if anybody deserved a second term, it was he. But American politics don't always pick the right person, and uh, that's the nature of the system with which we have and continue to have.
1: Well, I definitely agree with you in terms of uh, the – was perhaps – Almost tragic that George Herbert Walker Bush was not reelected in 1992. Let me ask you: uh, If do you feel comfortable in asking in answering the following question, uh, which is, what do you think of uh, President Trump as president?
0: Well, Donald Trump is the least experienced president in our, and certainly in modern history. He is impulsive. Um, I'm not sure how much he really studies issues. He is largely basing his judgment on his past experience in the real estate business, which is profoundly different from running a a government. And so I'm very, very concerned that um, Mr. Trump does not have the right background and understanding to be president. I'm very concerned by some of his appointees. Uh, On the one hand, while he did appoint uh, General Jim Mattis as Secretary of Defense, which I think is a great appointment, I'm concerned about uh, his new Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, who I assume will be uh, confirmed. Uh, I'm not sure that despite Mr. Pompeo's background, he's ideal for Secretary of State. But some of his cabinet appointees uh, really stretched the boundary of uh, of credulity. Uh, his Secretary of Education, uh, housing, urban development, the fact that they have such a huge turnover. And quite frankly, John Bolton, who's his national security advisor, concerns me because I think I don't trust Mr. Bolton's strategic judgment, and I know in the in the past experience when he was in government when people disagreed with his assessments he went out of the way to make life very difficult for them uh, rather than listening to other points and other arguments so I don't know that he is a sufficiently open enough mind, nor do I think does he have the gravitas to deal with a president who is very instinctive and very impulsive. Uh, the nomination of Admiral Johnny um, of... Uh, uh, Ronnie, uh, in fact, I've just lost the last name of the VA, Johnny, Ronnie Jackson. Yes. Uh, as a sign of his impulsiveness, Jackson apparently just withdrew uh, under a barrage of criticism. I think this just shows the, the really sordid nature of the, the whole appointment system. But Mr. Trump is impulsive. That impulsiveness does not work in politics. And his background in the real estate business, it seems to me, does not fit uh, what's happening Fortunately, so far, he's not made any errors that have been as catastrophic as George W. Bush's intervention in uh, Iraq in 2003 or the red lines that Mr. Obama drew about uh, President Assad of Syria. But the point of fact is he really hasn't had any major, major crises to deal with yet. I hope he doesn't. I mean, I hope no president really has to deal with major crises, but if they happen... Uh, I am concerned that his background may not be sufficient, as other presidents' background have not been sufficient to the task.
1: Uh, Getting back to the core of the book, you state that um, sound strategic thinking combines three elements. What are those three elements exactly?
0: The first, and I call for a brains-based approach to uh, strategic thinking, the first is the realization that the 21st century and the 20th century are profoundly different. The 20th century was largely binary. It was in World War I, the Allies versus the Central Powers World War II, the Allies versus the Axis, the Cold War, uh, the East versus West the United States and its allies against the Soviet Union. That era is gone. It's an era of multipolarity. It's an era of, de- era of diffusion of power and globalization in which power has now really been extended to individuals to a far greater degree to non-state actors such as al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and others. And so many of the concepts of the 20th century, certainly the late 20th century, such as deterrence and containment, which worked against the Soviet Union, no longer work today. So we have to understand it's a different environment. The world is more interconnected. We're really more dependent on other people. And we haven't put in place, in my mind, the policies and strategies to deal with it. Second, it is vital that we have far better knowledge and learning and understanding about uh, the world at large, especially in situations where we use force. And finally, the object of policy has got to be the ability to affect, influence, and even control the will and perception of friends and people who are not our friends to get them to do what we want or to stop doing things that we don't want them to do. Military force may or may not be part of that, but unless or until we come to these appreciations, By using tools of the 20th century that are not appropriate to the 21st century, our chances of succeeding are greatly diminished, and this is a realization that I think is the center piece of the book. The world is different today. We have to come to that understanding, and if we do, then we can be as successful in the past as we have been, and if we don't, I'm not predicting that there are hugely existential threats. We do not have cancer. But we do have a serious case of the flu, which is unpleasant. But it doesn't mean that we are a threat of extinction or anything as we were during the Cold War when a thermonuclear war would have destroyed society as we knew it then.
1: So you would disagree with the people, I'm thinking specifically Christopher Lane, who had a long article in uh, International Affairs, which is the quarterly journal put out by Chatham House in London, that uh, U.S. hegemony of the international system is being seriously challenged by the PRC?
0: No, I, don't, I, I agree with that. I'm saying something entirely different. Uh, what we have to do is to appreciate that China's economy is growing. China is going to take the lead in lots of areas such as artificial intelligence. We have to craft our policies to deal with that, similarly with Russia. Russia is using active measures of propaganda, disinformation, assassination, and so forth. Deterrence does no longer work against that. We need to have the policies to deal with the new forms of of statecraft that are being used. And so I think Lane is absolutely correct. But I think we're dealing with policies in the past which worked in a world that no longer exists, and we have to update that. That's why I think a brains-based approach to sound strategic thinking is essential to realize this is the 21st century, and we can no longer become the hegemon. As Winston Churchill once said, or at least attributed to Churchill, now that we've run out of money, we have to think our way clear. We've got to use our brains, gentlemen. And we have to use our brains because we may not have run out of money, but the world is different. And solutions that worked in the past are no longer going to be
1: a uh, So you would um, argue against people who advocate a, a containment of China policy.
0: Well, I would look at that different ways. First of all, you have to realize, and this is one of the problems with tariffs, China owns about a trillion and a half dollars worth of US treasuries. And it probably has about an equal amount of money invested in the U.S. stock market. So on the one hand, militarily, we'd like to be able to contain China to limit its reach, which we can do. But how can you contain China? Because if you want to get into a trade war with China, China then says, we're going to start dumping treasuries. And now it could really drop the bottom out of the market and ruin us financially. So we have to understand that this is something that did not occur during the Cold War. Similarly with Russia. We have to realize that Russia views the United States as dangerous because it concludes that whenever the United States intervened, it made situations far worse, Afghanistan, Iraq, or indeed Libya. So we have to craft our policies to deal with the situation as it is and not as it was. So in a sense, militarily, we can deal with a modular, um, some form of containment against against China but in terms of broader international politics, economics and diplomacy we have to engage the Chinese realizing that they have a substantial share in the US economy and quite frankly uh, there's a mutual interdependence between of the international trading community that's important to sustain and by diplomacy and discussion I think we can deal with the differences over uh, between China and the United States because President Xi of China realizes that the international economic system is as vital to China as it is to the United States but that requires a new outlook and looking at a world that has been profoundly changed as I have repeatedly argued.
1: Getting back to the uh, chronology in the book where you go back um, early 1960s to the present uh, you would not agree I take it judging from the book uh, with those who argue that uh, Dulles, Alan Dulles and Richard Bissell uh, who were the deputy director and deputy director of the right. CIA, they knew that the uh, Bay of Pigs operation would not succeed and that um, uh, they went into it anyway, hoping that they could persuade President Kennedy to use uh, airborne American airborne assets to salvage the operation.
0: Um The Bay of Pigs was was ill-conceived for any number of reasons. Uh, Part of the fact there is that we had sufficient knowledge and understanding um, of what was happening in Cuba. If you remember, the notion was that once the Cuban freedom fighters landed, the Cuban public was going to rise up and overthrow Castro. That was the basic assumption. And I think that Dulles and Bissell really believed that. But as the operation got underway, and it was clear that was not going to happen, the only alternative was to bring in U.S. air power, uh, the B-26s that were being flown by uh, mercenaries for the CIA were not sufficient. And at that stage, the only alternative was to engage the U.S. Kennedy understood that that was not going to happen, and so the Bay of Pigs terminated. But the fundamental flaw was the assumption, wrong. And we make many wrong assumptions uh, in, in Vietnam and Iraq and elsewhere, that the Cuban public was going to rise up once the force landed in the Bay of Pigs, and that was just a a wildly wrong assumption. That should have been challenged in the first place, but it was not.
1: In the book, you have a very interesting vignette where you discuss meeting in the White House, uh, the family uh, quarters, I believe on the second floor, President Johnson in 1967. Can you go into a little bit of that for the audience?
0: Um, For reasons, uh, I I talk about that as a vignette that happened to three or four young officers and leave my role of that slightly out, but obviously readers can understand who was there and who wasn't. Uh, Lyndon Johnson had brought back three or four young officers from Vietnam because he wanted to get an understanding of what was really happening. And one of the officers, when asked in the first few minutes of the meeting in which basically all of Johnson's cabinet was there, Bob McNamara, Dean Russ, the Secretary of State, uh, Walt Rostow, who was the Deputy National Security Advisor, Mac Bundy, who was the National Security Advisor. And this particular officer said, Mr. President, uh, I want to speak in blunt Texas terms. We're getting the shit kicked out of us. And went on to say we have two choices. We can get in or get out. At that point, Johnson interrupted, and for the remaining 50 or so minutes, he and his team gave a pep rally to the three or four young officers about how the war was going, and at that stage it was clear that the White House was operating on a uh, a view of the war that was completely disconnected from what was happening, and it was clear that uh, the United States at that stage uh, had virtually no chance of succeeding.
1: Understood. And in your discussion of uh, the Vietnam War in general, yeah. uh, would you agree or disagree with scholars like uh, Leslie Gell in his book, Vietnam, the System Work, where employing the bureaucratic politics model of um, uh, analysis, he states that um, each president from Eisenhower to Nixon only operated in terms of Vietnam policy to the extent that they wished to avoid a military or a political defeat by the fall of uh, South Vietnam, but they had no in real intention of uh, trying to uh, secure military or overall victory.
0: I think Les Geld gets it basically right. Uh, the problem we went in, in, into Vietnam is that John Kennedy took his presidency, vowing to pay any price, bear any burden. And really genuinely believed that Vietnam was a place where the free world was uh, fighting the monolithic communist threat. Uh, Linda Johnson actually said that we will stop the commies on the Mekong so we don't stop them in the Mississippi. And we thought that by gla- gradual escalation, we're going to force the North to quit. And the term quagmire works because by the time that Richard Nixon entered office, uh, it was clear we weren't going to win. Uh, we were afraid of taking the war to the north, much more than the bombing campaign, by an invasion somewhere north of Vinh, which is about a third of the way uh, north of South Vietnam, to cut North Vietnam in half for fear of provoking the Soviet intervention and Chinese intervention. And at that stage, Nixon was trying to work uh, his... Uh, reconciliation with communist china and so it's absolutely true we got stuck in the war we couldn't get out and we were not prepared to escalate to a point where we could end it and so ingloriously the war ended in nineteen seventy five as you recall with that dramatic photograph of uh, last american huey rising from the embassy in saigon but the fact is we were in we couldn't get out we were afraid of escalating and it was a no-win situation caused by the fact by several facts one We thought we were morally superior. We thought that the Cold War was being waged there. We misunderstood that the Soviet Union and China were not a monolithic threat. And we thought by body count and being able to put enough ordnance on target, we could cause the North Vietnamese to quit. The North Vietnamese knew better. The North Vietnamese knew their strategy was to win by not losing. They hardly ever won a battle, but they won a war. And those same problems in terms of failure to understand and know about the situation applied in other circumstances, such as Afghanistan and Iraq. And it seems to be a recurring syndrome of the United States governments, irrespective, that when we use force without challenging the assumptions and having full knowledge and understanding, even to relatively minor uses of force, the chances for success are very small.
1: Getting back to the Nixon administration, isn't it ironic that uh, the original rationale for the rapprochement with China was the expectation that the Chinese as a quid pro quo for American recognition and uh, to some extent uh, strategic protection vis-à-vis the Soviet Union would exercise pressure on the North Vietnamese to come to a favorable settlement of the conflict – And, of course, that never occurred.
0: I I think to some degree that was the expectation, but I think it was a relatively small expectation. You've got to realize that Richard Nixon uh, served under Dwight Eisenhower for eight years, and Eisenhower wanted to have a rapprochement detente with Khrushchev. And towards the end of the the Eisenhower administration, that was actually happening in January 1960, Khrushchev... uh, reduced the size of the Soviet military by about a million people cutting their reserves. And then, of course, Jack Kennedy came in and reversed that situation by our military buildup, which led to a variety of things that worsened the Cold War. But Nixon ultimately wanted to do a deal with the Soviet Union because he thought the arms race was unnecessary, and he thought because he thought Europe was our strategic center of gravity, and the original purpose of what was called triangular diplomacy was to force the Soviet Union to some kind of an agreement, because China was now not allying itself, but moving itself closer to the West. And as a result, in 1972, you had the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, and you had the uh, SALT Agreement of Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty, which reduced uh, nuclear weapons on both sides, which was really Nixon's ambition. And China was the means to leverage the Soviet Union, and anything that could be done to leverage North Vietnam uh, would have been an extra bonus. But I think Nixon and certainly Henry Kissinger realized the history of China and Vietnam, and every time China got engaged militarily in Vietnam, it was beaten. And so I think that clearly the object of that policy was the Soviet Union and putting in place some kind of detente.
1: In your discussion of the Carter administration, there is a a very amusing story, obviously relating your own experience of being interviewed for a position on the National Security Council staff. Can you recount that?
0: (laughs) <laughs> Certainly. Uh, I was being asked to join the uh, National Security Council staff. Uh, I had some expertise in the uh, in the Soviet Union, and uh, I asked a whole series of pointed questions, and clearly the interviewer, who was then the Deputy National Security Advisor, was uh, a bit concerned that my questions were too pointed and might be an embarrassment. And so after the interview, I was never contacted again.
1: That was, uh, I believe, what, Mr. Arendt?
0: No, no, it was Vykochkov. Aaron came in after his, as Vick's replacement, um, still under Brzezinski.
1: Understood. And overall, you're not very impressed, or in retrospect, with the uh, Carter administration's foreign policy?
0: No, I think it was weak. Um, the, the reason that Jimmy Carter was elected president, and quite frankly, Gerald Ford, I think, would have been a much more competent president. Uh, he was, as you know, Nixon's vice president, who was appointed uh, with the resignation of Spiro Agnew, and then uh, after Nelson Rockefeller left. But there was no way that a Republican was going to win, given the Nixon administration. And Carter was extremely well-meaning, but he was a technical engineer and had a narrow view. And I think his national security advisor, Big Brzezinski, who um, I had enormous respect and admiration, who had a terrific view of the world, I think it was very, very difficult for Brzezinski to be able to put in place the kind of broader approaches, because... Jimmy Carter had too narrow a view, and I think that he had a moralistic appreciation of the world which really didn't fit. For example, he wanted to remove all of our forces from South Korea, which would have been a disaster. Uh, talking about nuclear weapons with the Soviet Union, he referenced the discussion he had with his 10, then 10-year-old daughter, Amy. Uh, none of this really produced great confidence. And, of course, in 1980, with the Desert One failed hostage rescue mission in Iran. Unfortunately, the Carter administration's chances for re-election were really greatly diminished. I think Carter was a noble man, but I don't think he was prepared and had the right stuff for the presidency, despite all of his qualities. And I think Big Brzezinski was a great national security advisor, but unfortunately had a president who uh, was not able to manifest uh, Brzezinski's views in ways that I think would have been much more uh, helpful to the nation.
1: And, but overall, would you say your um, opinion or view of the Reagan administration is more positive?
0: Not really. Uh, Reagan's great skills, in my mind, were that he was genuinely likable. Uh, after the, uh, not only the Nicaraguan fiasco, in which we mined the harbors of, of Nicaragua to get rid of the Sandinistas, and Ortega is still in place. There was the Iran Contra catastrophe when we exchanged hostages for weapons that were shipped through Israel to Iran. And had Reagan not been popular, I think he would have been impeached. But let me give you a small example. Uh, Reagan was credited because of our military buildup of breaking the Soviet Union. That simply is not true. Mikhail Gorbachev took over after a series of living dead leaders were in charge of the Soviet Union. Brezhnev, who was dying for years, then Chernieko and Andropov, who literally were incapable of doing anything. And Gorbachev came in imposing a system of glasnost and perestroika, openness and restructuring to fix the Soviet Union. He fixed it all right, and once he opened the floodgates, it imploded. And America's military buildup had little to do with that. There's also a vignette in the book which I think is very telling. In October 1983, Uh, 241 marines and american service personnel were killed in beirut and several days later the united states invaded granada on the basis that 221 american students who were studying at the saint george's medical school were at great risk given the coup that had just killed the grenadian president of prime minister maurice bishop and also because the cubans were building an airstrip that the reagan administration felt was going to be used by the soviet union so when we went, some would argue that the reason for Grenada was to cover up or at least to take uh, uh, attention away from the Beirut bombing. In any event, we sent 8,000 Americans down there, and the admiral in command was repeatedly called by the White House, how are the students? And finally, the admiral radioed back, the students are in no jeopardy. Further, the Cubans were building an air base, but the air base was being built by Plessy PLC, a British corporation of right-wing views for the British government that had been trying to increase tourism in Grenada. And being good capitalists, they got the low-cost workers, which were Cubans, with a proviso that guards would be there so that the Cubans could not defect. And the night before the invasion, Maggie Thatcher, who was under great political pressure, because at that stage, Reagan was introducing uh, short-range Ballistic missiles and cruise missiles into Europe to counter the Russian SS-20s. In fact, that was a ploy that worked very, very well. And Thatcher said, look, Ronnie, I'm under great pressure. Tell me you're not invading Grenada. And Reagan, in his memoir, said, what can I do but lie? And so I said, "Baggy, of course not. But the point is, we went into Grenada to save American students who were not at risk and to prevent the Soviets from using an air base that was being built by the British for British consumption. That, to me, is a stunning example of a failure of knowledge and understanding of situations in which we use force. And even though the intervention succeeded, uh, the fact is that the reasons were just nonsensical. And in other cases, intervention did not work as well.
1: You and I both agreed that uh, in the time period you're analyzing, George Herbert Walker Bush was by far the best American president in matters relating to foreign affairs. Would you? Is there a particular aspect of his um, handling of foreign policy which you thought was less than stellar?
0: Um, I would also put. I would also put Richard Nixon, and I think Nixon was a brilliant president, both domestically and internationally. Uh, was highly qualified, but unfortunately Nixon had certain character flaws that resulted in the Watergate and uh, a destroyed president. The one area where George H.W. Bush uh, did not do what should have been done, and the reason he did not was because there was insufficient bandwidth And both the book that he and Brent, Scowcroft, Brent was his national security advisor, wrote a report about that in terms of Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, and what was happening uh, in the Balkans. And unfortunately, Bush did not have the time or the energy to deal with that. Uh, as as we noted, Panama in 1989, when the intervention broke out, then of course he had a deal with the former Soviet Union and what do you do about uh, Europe, which was really hugely time-consuming, and then of course the Iraq invasion of Kuwait in 1990. So the area where George W. Bush, I think, would have liked to have had greater impact was in the Balkans and the former Yugoslavia. But in in reality, the White House has got a real problem with bandwidth and time, and it can do so many things. And Bush got the the big things right, and unfortunately, Yugoslavia suffered. But I can't really fault him simply because uh, I think it was just almost physically impossible to turn all of his energies in so many places at once. Having said that, one of the real dilemmas of the modern presidency is now you've got multi-crises popping up everywhere, and bandwidth is a critical issue, irrespective of who's president, what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Iraq, what's happening in Yemen, what's happening in Europe, What happened in Salisbury, England, what's happening in in China, what's happening in the Philippines, and on and on and on and on, are really demanding. And for one person to be able to cope with this uh, is an impossible task especially in a political environment where the bitterness and the pernicious nature of the system mean that even a slight cut could become easily septic. And so uh, the politics of Washington today really make being an effective president extraordinarily difficult simply because the number of simultaneous crises are increasing, let alone the domestic problems that uh, this particular president has with uh, porn actresses and former playboy models and all the accusations, and the fact that there is a Russian probe ongoing in which the issue is not collusion, but whether there's been actual obstruction of justice and illegal money laundering, in which a number of people have been indicted, including a former campaign manager, you're now in the White House, and it's hard to know whether the situation in Syria or the situation with Robert Mueller, um, the special counsel, is a greater threat to the presidency. These are very, very difficult times.
1: Would you um, then advocate something which was raised as a trial balloon back in 1980, at the Republican convention in Detroit, which was having a, in essence, deputy president responsible for foreign policy. Of course, George, I'm sorry, Gerald Ford, with uh, Henry Kissinger right. as his assistant, Made was that supposed point. to fill that role if he had been picked by Reagan as his vice presidential nominee.
0: I, I No, I don't think that would work. What I have argued before, and I think is important, If Congress is going to be a board for the landing, it needs to be a board for the takeoff. And I think Congress ought to form a version of the National Security Council that the White House has, and consisting of the eight or ten most senior people of both houses, with the Vice President of the United States, who is the only officer of the U.S. government who serves in two branches as the President of the Senate, that liaises much more closely with the White House. And in that regard, you can divide up the areas of responsibility. I would also change the structure of the NSC so that I would have senior deputies responsible for each of these areas, but to ensure that they really had sufficient knowledge and understanding. And for that, we would have to make changes in the overall uh, National Security Act so we can provide far better means of informing people in the White House. If you take a look at the Defense Department, the CIA and the State Department, and the Treasury Department, they're all organized differently. So that if you have a meeting, say, for example, on Syria, you may have 20 different people because Syria is dealt with differently in each of the branches. And so, therefore, that makes dealing with consecutive crises very, very difficult. I also would have three deputy national security advisors who basically would be on watch round the clock so that when crises took place, they would be able to deal with them, so you're not constantly waking up the same people all the time and exhausting them. But it's a real demand, it's a real challenge, and, and quite frankly, any organization uh, that you put in place is going to have certain flaws, given that no organization is perfect. But there are things that we can do, I think, to make the system better and more effective.
1: Les Aspen, uh, Pentagon whiz kid under McNamara. Right long-time chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, was a failure, actually relatively quick failure as Secretary of Defense. Who, since 1947, when the post was authorized by Congress, would you consider a success in that role? Was it uh, Lovett? Was it McNamara? Was it um, Harold Brown, Weinberger, or Cheney?
0: Uh, I think the most successful Secretaries of Defense Um, I'd have to put Melvin Laird at the top. Laird was Nixon's first Secretary of Defense. He was taking over during uh, the midst of the Vietnam War. He had the political skill sets, and I think I would give him very high grades. I think Harold Harold Brown was very, very intellectual. I think Jim Schlesinger would have been a great Secretary of Defense. He was only there for a year and a half (coughs) and then was fired by Jerry Ford and replaced by Don Rumsfeld. Uh, I think most recently... Bob Gates and Leon Panetta were very effective secretaries of defense because they were open to um, they were open to criticism and they listened and they were tough and I also think right now Jim Mattis may prove to be one of the best secretaries of defense that we ever had uh, because he is knowledgeable, he's experienced he's tough he's reasonable, he listens and he reads. And so far, I don't think he's put a foot wrong. He's probably the only, he is the only cabinet official who's been able to deal very, very successfully with the, with President Trump without embarrassing himself or making himself look dependent. And so right now, I think Mattis gets really top grades for what he's doing under very, very difficult circumstances.
1: So you wouldn't hold Lair in uh, any way responsible for the hollowing out of the army after or the armed forces after uh, Vietnam?
0: It wasn't so much Laird. Uh, We did shift to an all-volunteer force during Nixon, but after every war, and the exception is the fact that we still are at war. Interestingly, we've been at war since 1945, about half the time, about half the number of years or more. Uh, What happened was after the Vietnam War, we cut back spending. Uh, We were trying to move to a volunteer force and, and... even after World War II or World War One, there have been huge cuts to the military. That led to the hollow force. Now, you raise a very interesting point, Charles, because I would argue the greatest threat possibly facing America is not Russia or China or radical Islamics. It's a hollow force in the military. And ironically, even though we're spending $700 billion a year, what's happened is that because we have used the military consistently for 17 years, we've really been unable to continue to spend enough money on readiness and modernization, and we've exhausted people. On top of that, we have a regulatory system for the Pentagon, which is Frankensteinian. It is unbelievable that the Pentagon works at all with over-the-rules oversight and so forth, which probably account for maybe a third of everybody's time dealing with many of these rules, which are just nonsensical but have been put in place because Congress and other people want oversight. And more diabolically, the Pentagon has uncontrolled internal real cost growth of three to five percent a year uh, for everything from precision weapons to people to pencils uh, the cost of people are going up the cost of weapon systems uh, before world war ii an american fighter plane or spitfire british fighter plane cost less than a rolls royce today an f-35 costs over a hundred million dollars now these airplanes are unbelievably capable but they're unbelievably expensive and because of all of these issues, we are moving to a hollow force. In other words, we're not going to be able to spend enough money to keep the current size force of about $1.2 million fully ready, fully upgraded, fully modernized. There's just not enough money. And so unless or until we deal with that, we risk a very hollow force, which occurred after the Vietnam War. And. Right now, Congress has appropriated about $1.5 trillion for defense over the next two years, expecting that all the problems are going to be fixed, the military will be modernized. That is not going to happen, and it's not a fault of the military. In fact, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have been courageous over the last two or three years, making the case to the Congress that we have a huge problem. Part of the problem is that we've been operating on continuing resolutions, which fre- freeze defense spending. We have sequestration, which makes arbitrary cuts to spending. Imagining if, imagine if you were running a company, you didn't know what your budget was, and midway through, you were told to cut 10% arbitrarily across every program. This is how the Pentagon has been forced to operate, and I have tremendous admiration for the leadership who are dealing with these circumstances because uh, it would be beyond me to do that. And so, unfortunately, unless we take a real hard look of what's happening, we run the very real risk of a hollow force despite the huge amount of spending on the military, and this is not a fault of the Department of Defense. It's a fault of the politics, it's the fault of the process, and it's the fault that really believe that this amount of money is going to do what people think it will when it will not.
1: Can you tell or explain to the audience the origins of the concept, now famous or infamous, shock and awe?
0: Yeah. In the early, in the mid 1990s, um, a number of us were unhappy with what the Clinton administration was doing with defense. And so we put together a small group of, of, military officers who had experience in war, Vietnam, and certainly Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And the notion was, can we come up with a concept? And the concept was called shock and awe. And the idea was, how do you affect influence and control will and perception of the enemy to induce the outcome that you wanted? And the idea was to use Sun Tzu and Clausewitz to define what is the outcome that you want, and then work back to what it would take diplomatically, economically, politically, and militarily. And so that became shock and awe. Unfortunately, and Don Rumsfeld, later Secretary of Defense, was a rump. um, And the second Iraq war took place in 2003. Basically, it was Desert Storm on steroids. It was a force to destroy the Iraqi army. There was no sense of outcome. Really get to Baghdad and let the Iraqis take over. And General Tommy Franks, who was in command with the bombing, said, we're going to shock and awe. Well, the second day after the bombing, a huge headline photograph appeared in the Daily Telegraph of a bomb bursting in Baghdad with the title Baghdad Blitz. And shock and awe uh, (laughs) sunk without trace thereafter. Shock and awe was not used in, in the Second Iraq War. Had it been used, we would have had entirely different circumstances. We would have said, all right. What do we want as an outcome, a peaceful and stable Iraq? How do you get there? It meant keeping the Iraqi army in place. It meant keeping many of the people in the Baathist party in place. And it meant trying to foment a coup against Saddam Hussein to get rid of him that way, rather than marching all the way up to Baghdad, killing lots of people and destroying the Iraqi army. I think that could have done with far less cost and with far less military action. Now, nobody can prove that theory, but at least... If we had adopted shock and awe, we realized that it was the end state of what happens next. And so we would have answered that question first, what happens next. The Bush, Bush administration did not. And so we have turned the Middle East into a cauldron simply because we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know the consequences, and we didn't think about the consequences. And I think that this will go on for decades, if not longer, in the sense that the Middle East will remain a cauldron of turmoil. Al-Qaeda may be on the run. The Islamic State will be on the run. Radical Islam is not on the run. It will continue to fester. And indeed, it could be exacerbated. We will see. But we've created far more problems than we ever thought. And that's one of the uh, downsides of not having sufficient knowledge and learning, nor having a brains-based approach to strategic thinking in applying military force. Iraq is a classic example of why we lose wars that we start.
1: On the surface, the administration of George Walker Bush had a foreign policy team which was highly experienced, Secretary of State Powell, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, uh, to a lesser extent the National Security Advisor Rice, and of course uh, the Vice President uh, Richard Cheney. But uh, everyone says that they were a very unsuccessful team. Why would you, what's your opinion of the matter in terms of why did this, on the surface, stellar um, set of people not cohere into a successful foreign policy unit?
0: Very simple. The president, George W. Bush, simply was not prepared for the job. If you recall, in in, in in 2001, after Bush took over, there were a series of missteps, mishaps. And in fact, in the summer of 2001, the press was predicting that Donald Rumsfeld was going to be fired. He was putting in a policy of transformation. Nobody knew what transformation was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, George Bush may have been captain of the ship of state, but the ship of state was rudderless. Then September 11 struck. And all of a sudden, this clarified George W. Bush's mission. And this is according to George W. Bush's own words and, and his own speeches and his own uh, autobiography. Bush had a calling from his higher father, and that was not George H.W. Bush. Bush, because of September 11th, came to the view that the way I can resolve all of these issues is so through my so-called freedom agenda. And the freedom agenda meant that if we can democratize Iraq, we can change the greater geostrategic landscape of the Middle East. I'm quoting from what Bush said. The idea was if you democratize Iraq, this will spread to Saudi Arabia, Israel will be defeated, and we will get we will have a much, much more stable world. And then he invented this axis of evil of Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. I mean, this was foolish, but it was this vision that drove Bush to consider Iraq as the geostrategic center of gravity. And in that regard, uh, Dick Cheney and the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz, were enablers because they believed, or certainly Wolfowitz believed, that we should have gone to Baghdad. And so this was a means to settle old scores. But the fact of the matter is, uh, George W. Bush would not listen to Colin Powell Who was very much opposed to the war because he needed an excuse, weapons of mass destruction. The government knew what the president wanted. They knew what Dick Cheney wanted. And so when it was clear to some of us, and I opposed the war, and I made statements, I was then a commentator on Fox News, that I did not believe that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction because if you listen to the UN inspectors, everybody else, there may have been remnants, but we had basically destroyed all of his weapons. All of a sudden, weapons of mass destruction became the cause celeb. Uh, General Powell was was really uh, made to testify before the UN on February 5, 2003. And at that stage, he had the Secretary of the, the Director of National Intelligence, John uh, uh, Negropani, and the Director of CIA sitting behind him, George Tenet, and came up with this rationale. And unfortunately, it was fabricated. Ironically, the tapes that General Powell played about Iraqis moving weapons destruction around uh, were translated by Jordanian-speaking Arabists, not Iraqi-speaking Arabists, because there's a huge difference. And when you had an Iraqi-speaking uh, Arab listen to the tapes, they knew that these tapes were, were fraudulent. But the administration needed a cause Celeb to carry out this vision of the president of democratizing the greater Middle East. And so the reason the president had a national security team that could not work was not so much the flaw of the individuals, but it was the flaw of the president. That was the, I think, answer to the discontinuities in the Bush administration.
1: Was not the key to understanding the foreign policy of the Obama presidency the infamous um, New York Times magazine interview with the deputy national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, where he said that uh, his the president had um, uh, viscerally uh, skepticism, if not um, distrust of what he called the blob, meaning the Washington foreign policy consensus, which he, among others, included the uh, then secretary of state, Clinton and Secretary of Defense Gates, and that for that reason, all foreign policy really had to be operated out, out of the White House.
0: The problem here is that Barack Obama had really no background in foreign policy when he was in the Senate. He was only in the Senate briefly. He was tutored by Joe Biden and Chuck Hagel. Hagel went on to be uh, Secretary of Defense uh, later in the Obama administration. And so the other part was personality. The president has a 5149 personality. In essence, he's an intellectual and a professor and wants to look at all sides of the issue. And so because of that, he is hesitant to take any sort of action. But the fundamental problem was he was inexperienced. The first thing he did when he came into president was conduct what was called the Afghan-Pakistan or AFPAC study. And the whole idea was, as you know, President Obama wanted to wind down two wars, the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. That was why he thought he was elected, and in part it was. But he didn't understand that the issue was not Afghanistan-Pakistan, it was Pakistan. And he put in place the wrong team that came up with the wrong answer. And you recall that the then-general out there, Stan McChrystal, came in a request for 80,000 troops, which was widely out of pack. Uh, the president then acted basically on instinct. He called for a pivot, a strategic pivot to Asia, which inflamed uh, or our scared our friends and inflamed the Chinese, when in fact he should have said that Asia is becoming more important. We have responsibilities around the world, and we are emphasizing those in Asia. So the things that he did were basically because he lacked judgment, it seems to me, and experience in Libya, in 2011, he authorized a strike largely because the British and French were going ahead, but in so doing, Muammar Gaddafi was killed and there was a civil war. He also declared red lines against Syrian's President Assad from using chemical weapons and said Assad must go and did did nothing. And so I think the issue was, well, uh, Barack Obama, in my mind, is an admirable man, uh, a very, very intelligent man. He simply did not have the right stuff or the right experience levels to be an effective president. And unfortunately, he made too many mistakes in his presidency. In some ways, they uh, were responses to his virtues of trying to be uh, all informed um, and being very, very, very careful and perhaps overly careful. And I think that uh, however bright Ben Rhodes may have been, I think that the issue was that the Obama White House, like all White Houses, becomes increasingly aloof and independent of advisors. Power power is drawn in as if by gravity to the White House, and one of the problems that every single White House uh, has is that it tries to bring in power rather than empower its cabinet secretaries, and that's no way to run a big government, and Obama was simply following the path and the the symptoms of previous administrations. White Houses want to be increasingly in control of events which they cannot possibly control, and that leads to uh, mistakes and errors.
1: Uh, Has any administration since, say, 1945 had a brains-based approach to strategy and policy?
0: To some degree, the Eisenhower administration, when Eisenhower came in, he had the so-called Solarium exercise that took place in the White House Solarium that laid out a series of of policies. Uh, I think George H.W. Bush did with his national security advisor, Brent Scowcroft, Uh, and to some degree, Richard Nixon did vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. Uh, And Nixon also had a policy called the Nixon Doctrine, in which the United States would be increasingly concerned with maintaining the strategic relationships and local powers would be more important, more relevant to uh, local security issues. I think that those three examples are perhaps the best we had, but certainly of the last four, Clinton did not have one, Bush certainly did not have one, Obama did not have one, and quite frankly I don't think that Donald Trump has one right now.
1: If you wanted uh, the reader uh, to take one thing away from this book, what would it be?
0: The American public has got to be better informed and more engaged in the government of its system. Uh, we need to elect people who are more capable and more experienced, unless or until the American public really engages in itself, uh, we're going to get the government we deserve, and that may not be the government we need. We also have to be exceedingly careful before we use military force. We have to understand that we have sufficient knowledge and learning about the conditions that we're using military force, and that we rigorously challenge the assumptions, because otherwise... Uh, if we do not do that, the chances of us are failing. The chances of us failing are indeed probably greater than those of us succeeding.
1: On that note, I'd like to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ullman. Uh, this is Charles Cotillo, New Books Network History Division. We've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Harlan Ullman about his book *Anatomy of Failure: Why America Loses Every War It Starts*. Thank you again.
0: Thank you, Charles. Oh,